and welcome to the Data IQ podcast. I'm David Reed, bringing you 30 minutes of interviews and insights from the data and analytics industry. Coming up, I'll be talking to Peter Jackson, Group Director of Data Science at LNG, about creating the right culture and finding time for his side hustle training chief data officers. I also talked to Jane Pierce about Autism Forward, an initiative aimed at helping employers to expand the neurodiversity of their workforce. But first, in early March, I interviewed the Information Commissioner, Elizabeth Denham, about the consultations and guidelines the ICO has been running and what Brexit will mean for the regulator. So I'm here in the London office of the Information Commissioner with the Information Commissioner herself, Elizabeth Denham. Elizabeth, we're at the start of a new decade, uh, which is likely to be the most data-driven yet. From your perspective as the regulator in the UK, how well-equipped are you for whatever challenges may arise? It is going to be an astonishing decade. I think we all know that with the pace of technological change, with social drivers, public and private, to use more data, much of it personal, we are definitely going to be in the limelight for for the coming years. Certainly from a data analytics perspective, AI, machine learning, these are all topics that I'm grappling with and my colleagues around the world, my counterparts around the world are grappling with them too. Are we going to be ready? Are we up for the challenge of regulating in this space? I would say that no regulator ever thinks that they have enough resources to do what they need to do. But I think more than just resources, it's a listening exercise. It's a partnership that I need to have as a regulator with industry, with government, with civil society, with academia to be able to come to the right answers around the use of data. A lot of these are societal questions that are not as narrow as data protection. Facial recognition technology is one of those. So partnership and new skills that I need to have in my office. We've recently hired economists because we have to look at the impact we have on the economy. We have AI specialists. We have um, dipped into academia to find the experts that can help us design AI auditing systems. So new skills, new partnership, new decade. Can you give any context of how in headcount the ICA has grown since you became the regulator to now? When I started in 2016, uh, I I believe we had about 350 FTEs, um, full-time equivalents, in my office. And I think uh, recently we did a headcount about 820 staff. So there's been a significant growth, but there's been a significant growth in how much data and data protection really matters, and how much data has grown as an asset. On that point, recently Ofcom was named as the online regulator. So what is the relationship likely to be between Ofcom and the ICO? I think think the the big issue, um, yes, there will be overlaps between what Ofcom's doing in regulating content and what we're doing in regulating data, because it's the personal data and the personalization and targeting that determines what content somebody is seeing. And I think, think about it in the case of children. We've just, the ICO has published its um, final age-appropriate design code, um, the kids' code, 
And what that's about is making sure that children are viewing and seeing appropriate content and that they have high privacy by default, that children online need to be treated more like they are treated offline, which is with special special classifications. But Ofcom and the ICO have to work together because you can't pull apart content um, from data. What's really important is that the regulators work together and in tandem so that, that we are doing the right things by the public, for the public, and also that we don't have two regulators landing on the doorstep of the same company for slightly different issues. So that means that we have to cooperate and coordinate and, and we have a good partnership. What impact did you see the enforcement of GDPR having and continuing to have on the data industry? Did it get the response you expected and what can the industry still expect from the ICO in terms of actions? I think the impact of the GDPR in having the level of sanctions, the level of fines that are contained in the Act, I think that had an impact on organizations taking the law seriously. But now we are in a time when there are enforcement actions underway. They're not always known to the public. We have enforcement files in the pipeline. And the two large um, pending fines that the public does know about, because the the companies disclosed that information, Marriott and uh, British Airways, those files have to go through the European Data Protection Board. So that's 27 of my EU counterparts that have sight of those files. And that's the cooperation mechanism for cross-border and, and until we are completely out of the EU and outside the transition period, then our, our fines and our sanctions are subject to the board review. So it takes time. There are other files before the board um, that other member states have as well. Um, did people expect that there was going to be a fire, a set of uh, firestorm or a firestorm of big fines against organizations? I always said that just because we have greater fining power, if a lower fine does the trick or a different kind of sanction like stop processing orders, then we would use those tools as well. What people haven't seen is our mandatory audits, our inspections, our warning letters, our audits of political parties. So I think we've been really busy, um, but we haven't issued perhaps as many fines as were expected. I would just say watch this space. There's there's more coming down the line. As you see larger fines and the potential for also reputational damage, you will see um, more a more adversarial relationship between regulators and companies, especially the large players, and will be subject to litigation and court processes. So we have to make sure that we're dotting all our I's and crossing our T's because, of course, as a regulator, we're subject to oversight by the courts. You were saying to me beforehand that you felt data had now become mainstream, come out of the shadows. And, Elizabeth, I think you might even be responsible for making it a dinner table topic of conversation. It's um, having been... I've been working in in privacy and data protection for, um, well, since the the turn of the last century, so for 20 years, and I never have to explain what I do 
anymore, not even to border security or to my family or to my mother. So I think people understand that data and data rights matter and that data issues are at the intersection of security and privacy and freedom of expression and getting the balance right between the effectiveness of technology and taking people with you along the journey. And uh, it's, it's extremely exciting to be in this field as a regulator right now. Looking at the political landscape in the UK, and with apologies for using the B word, what impact will Brexit have for the ICO? We're in the negotiations, we're in the transition period in terms of uncoupling with the EU. The government will need to decide what its independent data strategy, data protection policy is going to be. The government has also said that they'll be seeking an adequacy assessment by the European Commission. So that, obviously, the UK regime has to be essentially equivalent to the EU. So businesses have got ready with GDPR, they've rolled out GDPR, and I think businesses don't want to see um, a significant change in that. And we need to do business around the world. So... One change for the ICO, though, is that we are no longer a part of the European Data Protection Board, which is the board of the counterparts of the the EU27. We're outside of the board, so that means the UK ICO has competency in its own right, and there's no longer just a one-stop shop, there's a two-stop shop. And we were recently in California advising companies that they would be subject to Um, the board's decisions, but also the ICOs on its own. So we have to carve out um, an independent space for ourselves as well. What's really important is that data knows no borders, data protection and cooperative enforcement is really important because we are regulating companies the likes of which we've never seen before. So I think global interoperability and and joint enforcement is is important. From the perspective of the data industry and how it engages with the ICO. What would you like to see? Would you like more openness, more contact, uh, secondment by people into the ICO, something else? I would like the data industry to realise across the piece that the regulator is more about advising and educating and helping than it is about enforcement. About three-quarters of the resources that I have go to those things such as building toolkits, writing guidance, answering our helpline, our small business line. So we do more help than we do pulling out the stick and doing the enforcement. So I hope that you will contact us. I hope you realize that we are on a major listening exercise as we roll out four statutory codes around direct marketing and data sharing children's online, you'll see that we've developed these codes. Please comment on them. Please give us feedback and and trust us that we think privacy is a team sport and we need industry to collaborate with us. Our ad tech work is one of those examples of a, a wicked problem in a way. We know that a lot of data is being used, especially in real-time bidding, in a non-transparent way. We also know that um, digital advertising in that model is an ecosystem 
that benefits small players even more than the, the larger players. So when we look at that issue, we have to give industry enough time to move, move the dial. And we're waiting for um, a better signal for, for industry that, that, that they're taking data protection seriously. And if not, um, we do have our enforcement tools. But it is a listening exercise. We have to understand the impact of what we're doing. I'm sure people in the audience would be really interested to understand, you know, at a personal level, doing a job like that, what is that like? Most days, it's a huge privilege for me to be doing this job. Um, some days it feels a bit isolating because I am making decisions that have huge societal impact. And when I'm looking at um, things like the rollout of live facial recognition and the use by police forces in public places, it's, it, it's really important to get that balance right between security and privacy. When I look at issues that are on my desk like mobile phone extraction from the phones of sexual assault victims, the police want more data, the victims want to turn over less, where's the right balance for the justice system? And when it comes to kids online, I really think that we'll be astonished a decade from now, when, when my kids are having their, their kids, we'll be astonished that there weren't better protection protections for kids online, and I think um, that is going to be my most important contribution. Now, Peter Jackson is well known to DataIQ's audience as the author of the CDO Playbook and Data-Driven Business Transformation, but his day job is running data science and data in the LNG Group. Back in February, I visited his office in the City of London to learn about how he is delivering his own theory in practice. Okay, so I'm here in the offices of Legal in General with the... Group Director of Data Sciences, Peter Jackson, at least that's one of his job titles. <laughs> so, Peter, perhaps a lot of our community know you better from another realm, but let's start with your work here. Would you like to explain the breadth and depth of what it is you're doing? Yes, yeah, by all means. Um, I joined Legal in General um, about 16 months ago, we calculated a minute ago, um, as Group Director of Data Science. That remit takes me right away across the whole group. So that involves uh, Legal and General Investment Management, Legal and General Retirement Retail, Legal and General Retirement Institutional, Legal and General Capital, and all of the, the many businesses like Carla Homes, Affordable Housing, Modular Building, uh, and all of their sort of equity investments as well, so things like Current Health, which we've just taken an equity stake in, uh, and Global as well, so from, from Chicago right the way through to, to Tokyo and our European businesses. So uh, it's a very broad reach, and that role, um, I am, I've developed a data strategy for the whole of group, which is has to be flexible and loose to allow people to, to fit their own strategies within that, whether it's a business strategy or an IT strategy. Um, so it's uh, it's... It's a flexible, evolving strategy, um, a lot of stakeholder management in that role. Um, and mainly, it, it is about shifting the culture and bringing the right tools in. So that classic people, processes, and technology, I'm looking at all of those in a, in a very sort of try to be creative and, and bring people on board. My other role, as you're referring to, is uh, developing and delivering the data strategy especially for Elgin, the investment management business. And so I have to shape that, obviously, in line with my group strategy. Um, but there is a big job to do in Elgin as well to make us the, the investment asset manager that we wish to be uh, going forward. And there's huge opportunity in, in what we can do there, not only from good data management, but into some of the very exciting things around data science and machine learning. 
So you mentioned you've been here 16 months, um, and in that time, done a lot, clearly. Uh, what was the landscape like when you arrived, and was your arrival part of a, a new vision, perhaps, in the way data and analytics were going to be deployed across the group? I think, yes, I think it was part of a new vision. I think that uh, LNG realised that, that data was going to be increasingly important to them, and they wanted to, to bring in somebody to create that, that vision at group level for them. Um, and what a great opportunity to do that. Um, in terms of what did I find, in terms of sort of what was the, the playing field like when I arrived, I think like many large, complex corporations, um, there were some patches of some really good stuff, and there were some patches of stuff that really needed some work. Um, and highly regulated environments, where you constantly have to be on your game the whole time, as far as data is concerned. And like many big organisations, we've got a lot of uh, legacy or heritage systems, mainframes, a lot of stuff that's been bespoke uh, over the years in-house, a lot of systems integration. And from a data analytics point, I, I know the whole audience who's listening to this will, will feel the pain, will, will feel the challenge. <laughs> Unravelling yeah. that so we can be you know, an agile fleeter for data-driven organisation is what we've got to try and achieve. Now, uh, defining the strategy and, and recognising the opportunities is one thing. Getting that into the culture, even just communicating it, is another challenge. But you were telling me when I arrived, you've been busy road-showing this. Yeah. Give us a sense of what that's involved. Um, it's not only... I, I sit in group digital uh, in my group role, and alongside me I have Liz Harrison-Flynn, who's the, the group director of digital. And she and I, at the back end of last year, decided we needed to take our message to, to drive that culture of digital and data across the group because um, we have some great stories, we have some great vision, we have some great things we want people to buy into, but they can't if they don't know what we're trying to do. And if we want to change the culture, we need to win the hearts and minds and bring them with us. Um, so we went on a roadshow and we, uh, we did... The exciting places uh, like Chicago and uh, Frederick in Maryland and um, Hove and Cardiff and London, basically to, to give that, that reach far and wide. And, and a lot of the content we create from that is now on, on sort of our video screens in offices. But you have to constantly be on that. And so uh, in April 2019, when I early in my time, I decided to have the first group data science conference, partly to actually get that feeling, get the pulse, what was it like, what were people trying to do, what the blockers they were identifying. As a result of that, we did two things. The first was decide we need to have a regular data science conference across group because people loved it and there was huge appetite for it. Um, on Friday just gone, we had our second data science conference hosted at Google and we had 110 people from across group there. Um, so I'd like to say we've got 110 at least data scientists in, in the group. Uh, there was a wait list for it. But we also had keen interest from execs who turned up and, and were prepared to sit on a panel to be quizzed by the floor. But we also had the, uh, the chairman of the PLC and the CEO and the CFO uh, come along to see what we were doing and to show their support for that cultural change, which is really, really important. Um, that, that's quite remarkable, isn't it? Because uh, it's quite easy to sort of talk about it, but to turn up, yeah. uh, to be in front of our audience, really does symbolise perhaps a change in culture and a, a genuine ambition to embed this. Absolutely. I think that the same thing I would sense, perhaps wearing my other hat, you know, a Crothers and Jackson hat, sort of looking inwards, I see that legal in general there's a real desire, there's a real motivation, there's real ambition to create that culture and actually um, get behind data analytics and leverage it. Mm. Um, not only for the good of the company, but very much with the legal and general ethos of for the better of society and for, you know, to take on things like the climate challenge. Um, you know, they're very serious about their inclusive capitalism. Mm. Well, it's 
visible uh, here in the offices in the City of London, um, which clearly have recently been refurbished. And I think that's part of that change, isn't it? The Just the physical space that your teams are working in. Yes. Yeah, this is, uh, you're sitting on the ground floor of One Coleman Street, which was refurbished uh, and reopened in December last year to house the digital and data teams in an agile space. I think there's 12 scrum teams out the back there, which I'll take you around in a minute. Um, and I think, yeah, in terms of recruiting the right people, we have to be creating the environment that they want to come and work in. It's a very competitive space uh, in that market at the moment. So we have to create uh, the right space that they want to work in so they can be creative, uh, work with their colleagues in an agile way. Legal in general are buying into agile in a massive way. Um, very effective scrum teams lined up against value streams. Uh, yeah, so it, it's, it's a great environment to work in. Mm. Uh, now, you mentioned having 110 and a wait list for that conference, but you're not stopping there, are you? You are hiring. I'm sure many in our community <laughs> listen to this. It'll be very interesting. There is all pick up. Give us a sense of the, the roles that you're trying to fill. Um, in, in my group team, um, we've had a position of the head of Enterprise Data Zone, which is my concept of the group strategy, and we had an interim there last year, and we have an interim at the moment, but we are actually in market at the moment looking to recruit a, a full-time perm into that role. It's a very senior role, and it will have um, some data science uh, resource around them to, to uh, enable the divisions to actually accelerate into data science, and they will also head up our data science launchpad which is our accelerator for data science, where we're doing training of internal resources. So we're, we're, we're hooking into the apprenticeship levy. We're also creating our own curriculum. We're doing C-suite um, packages. Um, we're looking to raise data literacy across the whole business. Mm. We're also uh, creating a place to attend data science projects, which you can't do necessarily in a governed network like we have. Uh, but so people can um, develop their data science skills in a real environment with open data sets or anonymized data sets. So we're using the Google Cloud Platform for that in that environment. So that's a very exciting thing. And that role will head up that as well. Within Elgin, uh, we've created roles of head of data ops, head of data product and proposition, head of data governance, uh, chief architect, chief data architect, and a data comms role. And we've created those roles. They're all filled by interims at the moment. But we are coming to market to recruit perm roles into what are very senior roles, brand new roles in Elgin. Elgin recognises the needs for these roles. And around them, we've also been recruiting about 25 to 30 data scientists. Mm -hmm. uh, great opportunities. Clearly, when you look at our industry, data analytics, and you think about this year and the new decade, do you see things like skills and talent as continuing to be a challenge? Yeah, I think there will always be a challenge. I think as we're moving uh, into the fourth industrial revolution, every industrial revolution has required new skills. And Jeff Davis, the uh, the group CFO at the Data Science Conference on, on Friday, threw out that challenge. How are we going to upskill and we're going to cross-skill? How are we going to recruit the right talent? And he said no, a conference like that was one of the, the key things. Um, so, yeah, we do need to skills will be a challenge and, and it's finding the right blend of skills as well um, you know you don't just want all your PhD data scientists you need a full range of data science abilities um, and subject matter expertise and you have to blend the two mm -hmm. yeah uh, now you mentioned Crothers and Jackson um, and of course a lot of people will know you from that role that's more about the sort of behavioural side of, of how you operate, perhaps, as a, as a leader, as a practitioner, than it is about the, the hard technical skills? Um, 
on the one side of the business that I'm not involved with, there's the consultancy side where Caroline is the, the CEO, but the other side of the business is very much more about behaviours and the data culture. Um, we, we have the Chief Data Officer Summer School, which is sponsored by Kaliba every summer. Uh, it's free for people to, to take part in, so... You know, Please sign up. Second great piece of music on this interview for our audience. It's sponsored by Calibra, so that's absolutely fantastic. That enables it to be free. It's a 10-week course of 90-minute live webinars every other week through the summer. Um, We had 220 people on it last year, 119 the year before. It's a great community of of data leaders. Um, And that's what Carol and I believe in, creating that community creating that education, that network, that support. We also have Data Talks, which I think you know about, which is our conference. I think the next one is in June in London. Um, so, yeah, it's a, I find that a very interesting side a side gig yeah. to be involved in. I'm not sure where you find the time for it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, I don't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> There's not two of you. You don't have a twin brother. <laughs> Jürgen Klopp looks very like me. Yes, that's now that's interesting about uh, that you saw the article about Liverpool Football Club using data science and wow. Jürgen Klopp actually refers to some of the analytics during games to change tactics that is interesting so thinking back to, to where you started off uh, in your career I think I first met you as head of data at the pensions regulator that's or right, yeah. something like that yeah. this must look like quite a considerable journey not just for yourself but for what has happened in terms of the view on data, the adoption of it, even the tools that are available. I think, yeah, absolutely right. It's been a, it's been a, a very, very fast and exciting journey for me personally. But I think you're right there. I think watching the tools develop. I mean, Solidatus, when I started, for example, was an idea in somebody's head. And now it is a, you know, a pretty hardcore data lineage tool that, that particularly regulated industries are looking to use. Clear has come a long way. Ultrix is, you know, is a big player now which it wasn't four years ago quite so much so yeah it's been a a rapidly moving technology market but I think you're absolutely right it's the culture that's changed you know everybody are now getting on board to realize you have to have somebody accountable and responsible for data for driving the leverage of the insight and the value from it for governing it for for being accountable for it Mm, absolutely well um it's great to have been able to talk to you about how that's impacting here at LNG uh, and to catch up with you about the journey. So, Peter Jackson, thank you very much. Thank you very much, David. Finally, late last year, I met Jane Pierce to learn about her initiative, encouraging people with autism into work and how employers can support that goal. Please note, as this is a field recording, there's a little more background noise than usual. So I'm here at the Women in Data conference talking to Jane Pierce, who is the charity trustee and the founder of Autism Forward. Jane, first of all, could you tell us a little bit about Autism Forward and its goals? Um, Autism Forward is um, a charity we launched last April um, with the aim of supporting um, autistic people into work and encouraging um, employers to um, bring neurodiversity within their diversity agenda and really examine if you know, the, the barriers to employment. We know it, 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 most people are aware that the unemployment rate for autistic people is unacceptably high with only 16% thought to be in full-time work and a further 16 in part-time work. The vast majority, um, over 70% of those who are unemployed, really want to work. Um, and um, So, uh, yeah, that is our mission. And we um, are one of the few charities that focuses solely on supporting autistic adults in work. Um, and we do that by funding specialist mentoring support, one-to-one support from specialists, 
our mentors are um, either autistic themselves or have a very deep understanding um, of, of autism, usually with a relative who's on the spectrum. And they are also specialist employment consultants. So they um, understand not only um, how to support that individual um, and identify their strengths and their challenges, um, but also can help them um, navigate the recruitment processes, which are so often um, barriers up for autistic people. And, um, and again, that's just that bridge with the employer, so the employer can also um, improve their understanding and their awareness of what they need to help that individual really shine and work effectively and, and, and lose their talents. So as I mentioned, you're here at Women in Data, um, which suggests that you recognize an opportunity, and I think you're getting some support from organizations or an organization that's practicing in this area? Yeah. So Credit Suisse, we've partnered with Credit Suisse for this um, opportunity today with Women in Data. Um, they um, they launched um, a program within their, um, an internship for autistic candidates within their um, Data UK Strategic Change team. Um, and um, other individuals who we've been supporting have um, joined that program this year. It's um, a fantastic program which has really um, uh, brought um, awareness of neurodiversity um, to the attention of you know, people right across the organisation. So although they started out with a very small internship with just two individuals, that's already grown this year and already grown to different departments if they've seen the enormous value that those individuals bring to their team, that strength of thinking differently. And um, it, autism is a spectrum. We help people into an enormous variety of careers. Over, um, But there are a lot of the skills that um, autistic, some autistic people have are particularly suited to working in the data industry, attention to detail, ability to spot patterns, ability to filter out any other sort of noise um, and, and actually really focus on um, on, on what the, the, the data is telling them and not be distracted um, by, by anything other than the, the data is presenting. Also, just that ability to, 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 to look at a project and look at a problem in a different way. You know, if we only hire people who think like we think we will only solve the same 80% of problems, we need those other 20% of problems to be solved. And by hiring people who do think differently, um, you will see the, the benefits of that. And everybody says we want to avoid groupthink. We want to, and you're only going to do that if you hire people whose brains work differently. So neurodiversity should be a strong component of any diversity program. Um, absolutely, and you know there are some again some really um, shocking figures around this. The CIPD um, did a survey last year, and only 10% of organisations said that their age policies took into account neurodiversity. Yet at least 10% of the population are neurodivergent, because that umbrella includes not only autism but also ADD, ADHD, dyslexia, and dyscalculia. And the firms that we um, engage with, who've done surveys, anonymous surveys, find this you know at least 10 percent of their workforce disclosed in an anonymous survey but aren't necessarily disclosing um, and, and therefore aren't getting the support and their um, strengths and their challenges are not, are not being um, not being recognised and we want to really take away all that stigma it shouldn't be stigma you should be wanting to hire people who think differently and therefore examining your own um, uh, recruitment processes and your own attitudes internally to, and, 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 and actually encouraging those neurodivergent people to um, identify and, and, and to help you identify what is difficult for, you know, about, for them about the process involving them at every step of the way 
So in other words, your workforce is already neurodiverse, but you may not have formally recognised that fact. For sure. Absolutely. There will not be a single workplace that doesn't have people who are neurodiverse people in them. So use that, you know, use that and, 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 and harness that strength to uh, actually make it um, open up your, your workplaces and make them more inclusive and allow those people to... Um, uh, to, to show their strengths and but also to get support in areas where they um, where they where they need support. Credit Suisse, for example, are doing great work here, but almost nobody knows about it yet. And one of our reasons for participating here is to share that with the, with, with with people here at Women in Data, um, and also encourage them to um, join our network. And we hold regular roundtables, which are free to attend for employers right across the city, right across. Um, all sorts of industries, so data, but also um, financial services, banking, law, accountancy, just to share what people are doing and to bring our autistic colleagues and, 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 uh, into those discussions so they can hear firsthand um, and, and be involved in in those discussions around what neurodiversity policy should be, um, which, which just helps everybody move more quickly. You know, really, uh, I, I'm a lawyer, so I don't like to reinvent wheels. I like to take a precedent and work with it, and if it's good, uh, just share that. So so the support that Autism Forward offers is not just for the individuals, uh, for people with um, the, uh, the condition yeah. 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 Uh, who are on the spectrum. It's not just for individuals who are on the spectrum. It's for organisations who want to make that step and create a supportive, positive environment to bring them into the workforce. Um, exactly. So we tackle. It's got to be tackled from both sides. We're not only helping the individuals, but also um, you know, helping employers um, take away those barriers. So eventually. Uh, but so we try and address both sides and say one is by creating this network and creating this uh, space for people to talk and share ideas and, and um, share what's working and talk with autistic people about what they want to see um, and we can signpost people so um, to um, provide awareness training and um, um, help with implementing those, um, uh, those, those, those programs. And that's it for another episode. If you liked it, please link, like and share and until the next time, goodbye.